Hello again, friends. Welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. Shlomo Buxbaum here, and I am so thankful and so grateful that you are joining us once again. Today's conversation is a really important one, and I know that it's going to resonate and be informative and a source of strength for many of our listeners, especially those of you who may be going through some struggles in your life, struggles that maybe you have someone to share it with, you have guidance, maybe you haven't yet opened up and reached out for guidance, and I think that you will find my guest today uh, very inspiring, and that you'll find information in this conversation and messages in this episode that will be a source of strength and encouragement and hope for you uh, in whatever you are going through. My guest today is Rabbi Yosef Shapiro. He is a rabbi, he's an author, and what we're going to discuss today is his personal journey of infertility, a journey that led him to write the book called In It Together, A Candid View of Infertility, where he shares the personal struggle that he and his wife went through on their path to parenthood. It offers information, hope, and encouragement for those on similar journeys, and he also counsels couples from around the world who are struggling with infertility. This is a struggle, as we're going to see in our conversation, that many, many people, I, I think the number that he says is, is one out of seven people are struggling with infertility, and so many people just have no direction. They don't know where to go. And when he realized that after going through his own journey, he decided to be bold enough, I, I can't even imagine, but he decided to be bold enough to share that journey with the world, and he has so much to offer not only if you're struggling with infertility, but through all sorts of struggles. We discuss in this conversation how to navigate your relationships when you're going through struggles in life, and maybe it's creating some sort of disruption of your relationship. We discuss what the role of a rabbi should be when you're going through such struggles. We discuss how to interact with other people. Maybe you have a loved one or a family member and you don't know how to bring something up with them, how to properly talk to them. So really, I think that there's something here for everyone. And I think that you'll find this episode really, really useful. And like I said, I hope that it will be a source of strength for you. Just a reminder, this podcast is a project of the Lev Experience, and you can check us out at levx.org. You could access our content there or on my website, rabbishlomo.com. If you are in the D.C. area, check us out in person, and you can help support the podcast by sponsoring an episode, making a donation online, and as I mention all the time, if you haven't yet picked up a copy of my book called The Four Elements of an Empowered Life, please do so and uh, let me know if you enjoy it. And if you enjoy this podcast, subscribe, leave ratings and comments, and uh, make sure to connect with me on all the social media platforms. And I'd love to connect with you. And most importantly, especially for this episode, share it with others. There are others that need to hear these messages. And if you're enjoying it and you're gaining from it, I promise you somebody else will as well. So thank you again, and I hope you enjoy the episode. This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. 
This is a great pleasure to have on the Empowered Jewish Living podcast, all the way from Atlanta, Georgia, Rabbi Yosef Shapiro. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Tell our listeners a little bit about you, who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing right now. Sure. So I grew up in Baltimore, took a slightly less traditional path by doing my MBA in investment banking, and then ultimately ended up meeting my wife, Rookie, who's from Muncie, and we joined the Jerusalem Cola, which is really what formulated the plans that led me to where I am today. And my wife and I joined the Atlanta Scholars Kolal about five and a half years ago and started from scratch an outreach center, an outreach shul in a community called Brookhaven, Georgia. And we started from scratch, literally knocking on doors with mezuzahs, cold calling people. And to date, we now service about 750 people. So it's been a wild ride and we loved most of it. And we now have this this wonderful operation servicing Jews of all different backgrounds in each one's personalized way that will impact them the most. Amazing. Wow. So all of our listeners, if you're passing through Brookhaven, Georgia, give us a listen. Where is that? Where's Brookhaven, Georgia? Like around 20 minutes north of the Atlanta Orthodox community. Got it. Got it. All right. We're officially in Atlanta, but it's like the northernmost part of Atlanta. So does that make you an Orioles fan, a Braves fan? (laughs) (laughs) I should be a Braves fan based on the previous performance, but I I haven't followed sports in a long time. (laughs) Got it. Got it. Very nice. So you recently, you wrote uh, a book, In It Together, and uh, it's it's a powerful book. It's a vulnerable book. And I guess the place to start is if you can... I guess, fill us in a little bit on what is the story over there? What's your story? Um, and we'll start there, but I'd also like to hear, and maybe you can weave this in. Uh, I'm sure that many people go through the struggles of infertility, but you wrote a book about it. And what led you to really want to share your story, which is such a personal, such a sensitive story. What, what drove you to share your story with the world? Yes. Great question. So I'll, I'll tell over the story. And then when you hear the outcome, hopefully you'll understand what pushed me to write the book. So my wife and I got married a little less than nine years ago. We moved to Israel and actually had our first child before our anniversary. So we, like many people, we foolishly assumed that, okay, you know what, this is what we want and it just will happen. And like so many of us, we just assume life's going to work a certain way. We're going to get married at this time. We're going to have kids at this time. We're going to have this amount of kids. They're going to all be perfect and everything's going to go smoothly. And like many of us eventually end up learning, that's not how life works. And soon after our first child was born, we started to realize that things were not going to be so smooth moving forward, having more children. And after six months living in Jerusalem at the time of trying to have a second child with no success, we knew that the medical guidance is that after six months, if you've already had a child, then after six months, it's time to go look for medical advice. So I met with my rabbi, Rabbi Yitzhak Berkowitz, who runs the Jerusalem Kolel. And I asked him, I said, listen, we're not in a particular rush. We can wait happens to be medical guidance is that since we've already had a child in the past, after six months of no success, they advise and recommend seeking medical guidance. So did you know that such a thing 
even existed because i feel no. like yeah no, people we probably had our first it's, it's smooth sailing from here on how how common is that i don't know statistics but it's very common okay um, good i just wanted to put that early because after a woman gives birth things change yeah and it's very very common uh, just today someone reached out to me this morning about a relative of theirs who had three children naturally no issues and is now struggling Never would have dreamed of it because they had three right away, no problems. But now, for whatever reason, nothing particular happened. But trying to have their fourth, they're having a lot of issues. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's more common than one may think, particularly because of how delivery of a baby impacts a woman's body. Right, right. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, so at that point, we took that advice. He advised us to follow medical guidance. We went to a doctor. And we started our, our medical journey in Israel, which has, is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we didn't have to pay anything for all our treatment there. But on the flip side, because the government is funding the treatment, they are so much less willing to jump into more effective, more invasive, more expensive procedures. So because of that, we were there under treatment for about a year, a very frustrating year because they literally did the most minimal amount of treatment possible. And about a year later, we were moving back to Atlanta because we had just accepted this position. We had nothing to show. And at that point, now moving to Atlanta, Atlanta is a big city and they have multiple clinics and very different than in Israel. Now that we were in America, we knew we were going to be paying tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for treatment. So we knew we wanted to find a clinic where we would be the most confident that we would get results. And we looked into, there are four or five main clinics, and there are two that we had we heard nice things about. We looked into it in detail, we spoke to people, and all of them seemed to recommend this one doctor, his name is Dr. Shapiro, actually spelled the same as mine, pronounced differently. <laughs> and I called their office. He works at a clinic called RBA, called the offices in August of 2022. I'm sorry, 2016, called them up. And I say, okay, we'd like to make an appointment. We've been going through treatment. We would like to continue. When's your next appointment? And they say, our next appointment is in March. March? I've been waiting already a year, a year and a half. I don't want to wait another seven months before I even go to a clinic. So uh, somewhat taken aback, I said, okay, you know what? I'll make an appointment for March. And I don't know, hopefully I'll figure something out that will make me a little more at ease. So I made that appointment for March and hang up the phone. And at this point, I said, okay, you know what? If they're not available till March, let me at least call that other clinic, the second clinic, which also people had mentioned nice things about, and see if I have a better feeling there. So I call up the other clinic. It's actually called Shady Grove Fertility. It's the largest umbrella of fertility um, clinics in the, in the country. And surprisingly, they said, we have an appointment next week, and a doctor will call you today. Nice. Which I didn't actually think would happen. Right. But Amazingly, I actually got a call from Dr. Mark Perlow a few hours later, and we started talking. I told him what we had been through, and he discussed the prognosis and what he would like to do. And towards the end of the conversation, I said to him, I said, listen, doctor, I have an interesting request for you. When a person goes through the IVF process, you can let me know, do you want me to explain what the process entails for your listeners? You know what, Yosef, I think you should. Let's give our listeners everything, uh, you know, especially we never know where, where the podcast is reaching. Yeah, so what, so you, you you can share it and maybe just take one step back. I'm also I'm also wondering, because you it does, you did mention people were telling you 
that you know that these clinics were recommended. So at this point, were you sort of sh- did did you have a support network of people that you were sharing this with that you're going through this? Like how who who was supporting you through this? Excellent question. So until we moved back to America, I don't think we had told a single person other than Rabbi Berkowitz and one other rabbinic figure who he had recommended we speak to because he had a medical background for this specific field, which meant we basically were struggling with this completely alone. When we moved to America, after a certain amount of time, I don't remember how quickly, we slowly opened up to a few more people. We told our parents, we told, I don't think we told siblings at that point, but eventually we did as the journey became longer than we had hoped. So we kept sharing with people as it became more and more obvious that, okay, after a certain amount of years in the rabbinic career, people start assuming, you know what, there's probably something going on. Mm-hmm. So we, some of it was organic that just, we wanted to know about a clinic. I asked Rabbi Elon Feldman, who's the rabbi here, is there anyone here in the community who's been through IVF locally that we could connect with? Um, And he connected us with some people, which was very helpful to actually talk to people who had been through the experience in the same clinics we were looking at. And slowly we started sharing. And obviously now, I don't know anyone who shares as much as we do, (laughs) having put out a book that is available to anyone. Right, right. So yes, we saw a lot of benefit once we got to that point, but it it takes a lot of courage to be willing to start sharing such a private struggle. But yeah, I can't encourage people enough to be willing to open up even if it's just to one or two people in your closest network, because really as you start sharing, it starts making you feel more and more normal, more and more part of society. And it really has a lot of benefits. Yeah, it's really important. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, so I'll just, before I explain the question I asked of this doctor, let me just explain a little bit about what the IVF process involves. So if anyone has ever looked at a video of how a pregnancy occurs naturally, It's unbelievably sophisticated. Actually, one of the greatest proofs that there must be a God is look at a video of how a pregnancy occurs. A natural pregnancy, which so many of us take for granted, needs literally tens of thousands of steps and processes to occur at exact moments. If it misses by a second, not becoming pregnant. If it catches but doesn't go far enough, not becoming pregnant. So many minute details. The process of IVF is basically an artificial copy of that system. So the doctors try to create that exact setting with all of those steps having to line up perfectly in order to sort of mass produce eggs within a woman. Then when they have those eggs, they can then take what they need from a man, combine the two, and hopefully under very, very careful guidance in a lab, They can hopefully create an embryo, which can then be placed back into a woman. That part's actually painless. doesn't involve any pain putting an embryo back in, which can hopefully lead to a pregnancy with continued hormone injections and many other things. Again, replicating what the body is supposed to do naturally. Amazing. So it's an incredibly complex process, both physically, tons of injections, very, very difficult for the woman who's going through it or sometimes the man needs many injections as well, depending on what the issue is that they're trying to um, make up for. But the other thing is that because they're taking multiple eggs and embryos, there is the opportunity to put in multiple embryos and create pregnancies that can potentially have twins or triplets or even more. So because of that, 
I said to Dr. Perlo, I said, listen, I know many of your patients are terrified of the idea of having multiples because it does have a lot of complications. It does have a lot of risks. But my wife and I in particular, we'd like a large family and we would specifically want to have multiples. Would you be willing to help us with that? If we're going to end up going through IVF and we have embryos, would you be willing to put in multiples? And I so assumed go he home, was for right? sure. Yeah. I assumed he was going to say, oh, of course, we, we want to have as many children as possible. Yeah. And he says to me, he says, how old is your wife? And I said at the time, I think she was 23 or 24. And he starts to laugh. And he says, you think you're having twins with me when your wife's in her 20s? If you want to have twins, find another clinic. Meaning he thought that you guys were not mature enough to handle it? No, 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 no. Medically? The, the medical risks associated with having twins uh. are, in his opinion, are not worth it when you have so many fertility, fertile years ahead of you still. Got it, got it, got it. So if someone's I mean, 37, why take the risk, 38, and they only have a few more years left and want a large family, so yeah, they may want to have twins maybe even mm. more than one time. But a person's in their 20s, you could potentially have another 15 kids still. Mm-hmm. through IVF or naturally you, know, you don't know the fertile window is so much larger though that that doctor it happens to be I've looked into this many many doctors around the country would say the same thing got it okay so doctor's like you know way Shapiro yeah, so the doctor says no and I said okay what am I supposed to do so I call up Rabbi Berkowitz and I, I tell him this dilemma I said on the one hand we have this one clinic that's not available till March but maybe willing to put in twins and we have this other clinic available next week and adamant that they're only going to put in one until my wife's out of her 20s. And he said very wisely, like all the guidance he and many rabbis have given me over the years, he said, listen, if they put in one and you become pregnant, you're not going to be upset. And if you are still not pregnant in March, then at that point, we can revisit if it's worth switching to another clinic. So we started treatment with Shady Grow Fertility. This was uh, probably around September of 2016 or so. And it was a whirlwind. The treatment is not a simple thing. People don't, can't, if a person hasn't been through it, it's hard to imagine how much it takes over a person's life. The finances are immense. There's no insurance. You could have appointments that cost two, $3,000. You have to pay it. It's not that you get it processed through your insurance. You have to pay it. And then you have an appointment again the next day. And it's another $800. So you have an incredible amount of financial pressure. There's an incredible amount of physical pressure. The process is a lot of injections and it creates a difference in the hormones of a person, which causes a lot of emotional buildup and and stress. There's a lot of issues on the mental health side where people get anxious Mm. and people worry, what's my future going to look like? How will I handle this? And it really does take over a person's life. Yeah. And And I I really want to, I don't, I I want to hear the rest of your story, but, uh, but a little bit later in our discussion, I do want to go back to that. And I I really want, I think that it would be really helpful for myself and for the listeners to really hear like what some of your coping mechanisms were for that. But we'll get back to that because now everyone's at the edge of their seats. They want to know what's going to happen. So I don't want to, you know, create that that digression. Yeah, definitely. So we went through this whirlwind. Um, People, a big mistake people think is that people think, oh, you're going through IVF. So you'll probably have children soon. It's not like that. Just the diagnostic process, just preparing the body for the IVF could take months because you have to make sure everything is lined up perfectly. And you could have everything lined up perfectly and you go to the base appointment, which is the one to just determine that we can start. And there could be an issue that can restart that whole process months again of redoing blood work, figuring out hormone levels. So the process took us a long time. 
relative though. There are some people who, who long is a 10 year journey till they get to the process of, of retrieval. We probably, thinking back to the calendar, I, I can't think exactly, it was probably about a year till we actually were able to do the retrieval, which is a real surgery. The woman goes under anesthesia. They have to go to get the eggs. They have to go through the um, uterine wall and they then harvest these eggs. And harvest is always a funny word, but that's the word they use. Hmm. Then they have to mix them to create, hopefully create an embryo. It's a very stressful process. You wait five days as you wait to see how many of those eggs actually develop into embryos. And then you have to wait for the body to get conditioned to be put back into the body. Right. Because again, there's different hormone levels that a woman's body has when it's preparing for pregnancy and when it's actually carrying a pregnancy. So all of that has to be done artificially. So anyway, we get to the point where it's time to put an embryo in. And again, Dr. Perlo, please, can you put in two? We'll sign waivers. We'll do anything. We've already waited even another year now. You're not having twins with me. If you want twins, find another clinic. Wow. He puts in one and now we wait. So anyone who's been through IVF knows about the famous two week wait. The um, process of time between when they put the embryo in and the earliest time they can do the blood work to see if there's a pregnancy is typically between 10 and 14 days. And during that time, you just wait and there's nothing you can do. You've already invested tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, years and years of emotion, of energy, and you just wait and you hope and you dive in. And I'll never forget the day that we were getting the results. I sat in my house and I just waited next to the phone. Oh, gosh. Hour after hour after hour after hour. And they call the, the woman, since the woman is the patient who goes in for the test. And they call my wife and they let her know, unfortunately, you're not pregnant. And you can imagine how, how the emotion comes crashing down. It's overwhelming. And keep in mind, just so you, your listeners can imagine, this was secondary infertility. We were crushed. We already had a child. So imagine what someone going through this with primary infertility is feeling. The wave of emotion, all that you've invested. And there's really nothing else you can do at that point. IVF, there are things that can be tweaked. So in no way am I trying to tell someone they shouldn't have hope. Even if your doctor says you're done, I don't, don't ever listen to that. There are always other opinions. There will come a time for every woman when it's no longer possible to have children. But just because a doctor says you're not having children does not mean you're not. We all, anyone in the infertility world knows people who were told they're never having children again that have had children again. Because Hashem, God, is far greater than any of these medical specificities are going to be. Yeah. So, but the reality is that there's not that much that can be done once an IVF has failed other than continuing, putting more embryos in, tweaking dosages, but it really is, is a very, very powerful um, feeling of devastation. So anyway, at that point, we obviously had to, had to regroup and we discussed what we should do. And we ultimately decided, okay, we're just gonna try this again and hope that it works. And of course we had hiccups along the way. Again, it's not like the next month we were doing this. It was again, a stretched out. We had again, make sure everything lines up. We happened to have had a, a, a cyst at that point which is a very common issue when going through all these hormones, which puts you back a full month. You got to wait a whole new month now to make sure that everything is perfect and ready to go. And we start our second cycle of transfer. And again, we go through the process. And a few days later, we are waiting for our results. And Baruch Hashem, the nurse calls back and says, you're pregnant. Now you're probably wondering, wait, why am I not all excited at this point? Yes. 
the reality is that anyone who's been through any sort of trauma, whether it's pregnancy loss, miscarriage, stillborn, infertility, anything like that, there's so much that you've been through, so much baggage sort of that you're holding on to. You're cautious. You're so nervous, so sure something's going to go wrong. Yeah. Wow. So because of that, we were just basically a bundle of nerves. Okay, they said we're pregnant, but who knows? But the true. second time, yeah, so the second time was identical as the first one and just something about the first one didn't. And the second time, same thing, same. So it was basically the same. If you want, maybe later we'll touch upon one of the strong things I recommend to people is advocating for yourself. And okay. we ended up advocating for ourselves. A whole wild story, but we ended up getting treated by a different doctor under, under the radar, a whole thing. Okay. And we'll never know if that's what led to it. But from the perspective of the clinic we were in, we did the exact same thing. Got it. Okay. And we get this result pregnant, but that doesn't mean you're pregnant because when you go through so many hormones, it's very often, I don't know very often, but it happens that it's sometimes what's known as a chemical pregnancy, that the hormone levels are at the range that signify pregnancy, but there's actually no pregnancy. So because of that, you have to take another blood test a week later. So we wait again. A week later, they call pregnant. Okay, now we can start to, to somewhat breathe, but again, now there's still the concern. We all know people who've had miscarriages and other issues, and we're so conditioned at this point that things are not gonna work out that we're obviously terrified. Me too, now, I'm sitting here, I'm like at the edge of my seat. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now the way it works is that the fertility clinic will hold on to you as a patient until your six week sonograms. So that's the way do a sonogram. They'll do the six-week sonogram ultrasound, and if everything's good, then they'll hand you off to an OBGYN. So the way it worked out was that the day my wife had that appointment, I was not able to be with her. I went to Kolal. So my wife's at this appointment. I'm sitting in the Kolal. Again, I'm totally nervous. Like, it's probably not going to have a heartbeat. There's probably going to be all sorts of issues. And I'm sitting there, and I get a text from my wife, and I'll never forget, she texted me a picture of baby A and baby B. Whoa! And what had happened was the embryo, the one embryo that the doctor insisted on putting in had split and we ended up having identical twins. Wow. And the, what the amazing thing is that so often in life, we limit ourselves. Our friend told us this, our parents told us that, our doctor said this, and we forget that Hashem is so much bigger than all of that. And if the doctor says you're only having one, and Hashem says you're having two, big deal. You put in one, God will split it. No big deal. And it really showed us how clearly that even though it was a struggle, a difficult struggle, but it showed us that really God is with us and there's something that we can take from that, hopefully. We chose to utilize that and try to give back and provide a resource for people, both those going through it, that they can now have a resource as to what they're about to embark on. People are going through IVF at, at alarming rates. The, the statistics are, are insane, but people are going at about one in every six couples now has to go through some form of treatment, which means in a small shul of, of 40 families, you're looking at about five families, six families, seven families might be going through treatment, which is a crazy, crazy percentage. And the amazing thing is, or the scary thing is that almost all of them go into a blind. I don't know what's gonna happen. I know there's injections. I know it's expensive. I don't know what I'm going to feel like. I don't know what I'm going to want to do. I don't have any tips. And really the main reason we wrote this book is to give people a glimpse into really what it looks like. So you can really know what your life is going to look like on this journey. 
And also so that all the outsiders, all those who associate our friends with our neighbors with our rabbis for those going through it can understand and feel a little bit of the pain, a little bit of the difficulty that those going through the treatments are actually going through. Mm-hmm. Was this, is, so it, was this book something that, that did not previously exist at all or it didn't exist in the Jewish world? Excellent question. So one of the things I always tell people, I counsel a lot of, of couples and advise people a lot in, in this world of infertility. And the amazing thing is that almost no couples have both members of the couple who like dealing with things the same way. It's an amazing thing. You'd think that, oh, they're married. Of course they want to do things the same way. <laughs> almost never. So in our particular case, my wife did not want to know anything that was happening. She said, I don't want to know what they're doing. I'd rather just do it and just whatever. Hopefully I'll survive. And I am the exact opposite. I wanted to know every detail. What's going to happen? Why is it happening? What's our alternatives? What's it going to feel like? What's it going to cost? <clears throat> so I looked into finding a book in the, in the Orthodox world from a religious Jewish perspective. There's only one book on the topic prior to this. It's called The Third Key. The Third Key is about a thousand pages long and is exceptionally technical. So a lot of details about medical dosages and stuff like that. There, there is some wonderful content in there. In no way am I saying that it's not a valuable book, but the average person who looks at a book that's a thousand pages long is not going to read it. Unless it's Harry Potter. So, right. Yeah. So I obviously read it cover to cover. That's my personality. I wanted to know every detail. Right. But after that, I still felt like I had no idea what our journeys would actually look like. So mm. I basically ordered every single book on the topic in the secular world. There's still not that many books on the topic, probably about 10 books. I own all of them. But after reading all of them, I still felt like none of them offered me any real idea what I was going through. They were either all gloom and doom, like it's going to be very painful. You're not going to have, end up having children or suffer your whole life. Or it was so technical about like the dosages and medications and doctors, and there was no real way to know what our experience was going to look like. So that's really what I wanted to create with this book is that people would have this book that we wish we had had when we were going through our journey. And they can really see what it was like going through it. How do you navigate when your parents want you to come to your, your sibling's child's breast? And you just found out that day that you're not having children this month. Very difficult things that people don't think about in advance. But if they read a book like this, now they're prepared. Oh, you know what? I already thought about this phone call. Now I already know I'm going to discuss with my parents and my spouse. That's something I'm. So it's giving, it's giving emotional guidance as well. Not just carrying someone through the technicals, but emotional guidance as well. Correct. Correct. And equally though, just as equal, I'll show you a copy. This is what the book looks like. If anyone's able to see. So if you notice the, the writing on the front covers that this book is truly a must read for every single Jew, mm-hmm. even a lot of people say, oh, I don't need this book. I'm not going through infertility. I'm already a grandparent. I don't I already have the kids I want. I'm single. And people forget that when you don't really understand what others are going through, it's extremely difficult to be supportive. And every one of us has someone in their circles that's struggling with this, a neighbor, a friend, a cousin, a sibling, someone and even subconsciously until you understand how significant the deal and the ordeal they're going through is it's very very difficult to really be there for them wow wow what what would you what would you have wanted the people in your life or you know you mentioned that 
you know, that, that the family member that's making a bris and there's another family member that's struggling to have children or everyone's getting together for Pesach or Thanksgiving, depending what you, your families get together for. Like, what, what does the couple that's going through that, what do they want their family members to know, to be aware of? Like, what are the steps to take? Yeah, that's an excellent question and so important because, yeah, for, for me personally, the hardest part of our struggle was the Jewish holidays, the umphas, because it meant that we were there. Every Jewish holiday is where I was focused on the kids. We have Pesach and, okay, which of your kids are saying the Manishtana? And our siblings have, are picking which of their kid goes first. And then we're, oh, of course, it's going to be just our kid, the one. And for other people, it's, we don't even have kids. What, what do you mean? This is so painful. So the most difficult part of it is that within every couple, you have two people. So you can have one member who wants to deal with things one way and another the other. So I, I still remember vividly, there was a friend of mine who I reached out to. I knew he was going through treatments also. And I asked him if he wanted to do something together, that we would do, we would learn something together, daven together, pray together, something that we would do on behalf of each other. And I still remember he said that he wishes he could do that. And I said, what do you mean you wish you could do that? And he said, if it were up to me, I would love that. There's no greater source of, of um, support I would get from that. But if my wife knew that I told anyone else and acknowledged that we were going through this to anyone else, it would be too hard for her. Wow. Therefore, we couldn't do anything together. Nice. So one thing you have to keep in mind is that different people process things differently, even within one couple. The other thing I tell people is the biggest no-no is to offer suggestions. Don't ever suggest why someone should do something or how they should do something. Anyone going through infertility has a doctor who's more qualified than you as the outsider is. Again, of course, unless you're also a reproductive doctor, in which case it's a different story. But assuming you're the average person, your sibling who's going through it, your friend is going through it, does not want you to tell them about that medical procedure you heard your friend went through mm. because they have a doctor. Their doctor already went through what works for them. And inevitably, when someone suggests something to you, what that means is that you could have been doing something differently, which means maybe it's my fault. And there's so much guilt inherent in the struggle of infertility, which is a crazy thing if you think about it, because it's almost always innate. It's very rarely if someone did something that led to their infertility. And yet people feel so guilty. What is, if I would have done that, it would have been different. If I would have gotten married younger, if I would have slept more, if I would have had less coffee, if I wouldn't have done that, we drive ourselves crazy. And when someone suggests something that inherently means, oh, you mean I should have done something differently? This is my fault? So, so painful. So I always tell people the biggest no-no is suggesting something. Right. The safest bet is just telling people that you're there for them. You can't imagine their pain, but whatever they need, you're there for them. You know, so just a couple of things on that. So just number, this is going to be totally the wrong question based on what you just said. But that being said, you mentioned six months earlier as being the time that, okay, six months has gone by, maybe we should call a professional. But the couple's already freaking out at, you know, three or four months, I'm sure. At that point, and I'm not saying someone else should suggest, I'm saying you, Rabbi Yossi Shapiro, speaking to our listeners, speaking to the world, someone says, listen, we're not yet at the six month point where we're gonna yet reach out to the big guns, but are there things that we should be trying, you know, 
at home or different ways that we should be looking at it to at least know that we tried doing our part. You mentioned, the, you threw out a couple of things and I'm wondering, is there any validity to any of that? Yeah, that's a good question. So first, I just want to clarify, it's only six months for someone who's already had a child. Okay. If a person has not had a child, then it depends. I think different medical guidebooks will either say 12 months or I think 18 or 24 months. Okay. But I think standard is 12 months. If a person's been, already had a child, six months. But the answer to your question is that no, I would not get freaked out. I think that people, you see both emotional um, polarized ends happen. Some people come to me and they're going about to start IVF and they're way too happy. And I try to like knock some sense into them, like slow down, you need to prepare yourself for this. It's not the type of thing that you think I'm oh, starting IVF, it's great, I'll be pregnant, nine months and having a kid. It's not like that. It's an all encompassing, very, very difficult struggle. So that's one thing. And on the other hand, you have some people who just assume that if they're going through IVF, oh, it's probably never gonna work, I'm never gonna have children. So it's, it's a tough balance, but until the point where medical guidance says that you should seek out advice, there's no reason to be worried. The medical guidance is on the stricter end of the spectrum. Tell me a little bit more about like, why do you think there's guilt there? What you mentioned guilt, and I'm just curious about that. Where is that guilt coming from? So I don't think it comes from a logical place. Like we, we all know in the rabbinic world that emotion is not something that is, is coming from a logical place necessarily. But at the end of the day, when, when you see so many people able to do something that you can't do as easily, you feel guilty. You feel like it must be there's something wrong with me. And even though, some, first of all, sometimes it is a real issue. Sometimes a man has an issue that prevents him from becoming pregnant or making his wife pregnant. Sometimes a woman has a real diagnosis. And they're also, they feel so guilty, but it's, it's still a shame because at the end of the day, they didn't do anything wrong. A person is born with certain things and a person has certain challenges. Some people's challenges are financial. Some people's challenges are in the mental health world. Some people's cha challenges are, are in the health space or in the fertility space. But yeah, it, it's a very difficult thing because it's not from a logic perspective. It's not that a person actually did something, but emotion is a powerful thing. And when we see so many other people do things that we thought we'd be able to do naturally and we realize we can't, it's hard to not feel like, oh my gosh, I must have messed up. Mm. Interesting. Can you speak a little bit about the role of a rabbi through this whole thing? You mentioned a few times you spoke to a rabbi and that I yeah. think to some of my listeners where they're coming from, that might not even be on their radar at all. So just bring us into that world a little bit. Yes, excellent question. I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of the most underutilized resources is the rabbi. So I wanna just break it down into two categories. There's the, the super rabbi, which I'll talk about, and there's the standard rabbi, okay? So I consider myself a standard rabbi, which means that in any community, a rabbi is likely in a position where they're able to offer support. That does not mean that they have the answer to everything. That does not mean that they can cure issues, but it means that they hopefully have a skill set that can really help you with your, what you're struggling with. So they may not bring a baby into the world for you, but they can hopefully help you process what you're feeling, help make sure it doesn't impact your relationship. A lot of people underestimate how much a struggle like infertility can impact their marriage. And having a rabbi in your life locally can really be someone who can make sure that everything else stays intact so that when you're with a doctor, you're at your best level of, of performance emotionally. 
and then hopefully they can take it from there. So, so really the support, also the opportunity to connect people. If a rabbi knows other people in his community have been through a similar experience, he can connect them and then people feel less lonely. They feel more part of something. Then there's the super rabbi level. And that is that there, there are rabbis in this world. There are not that many, but there are, there are enough that everyone can be serviced by them who are at a level of connection with God, a level of connection with knowledge and experience that they can, number one, guide a person and make a person feel confident they're making the right decision. And they're also able to offer guidance from a Jewish law perspective because there's an immense amount of questions that come up in Jewish law, when you go through this process, is this child going to be my child from a Jewish level? Right. Can I pick which gender I want? There are some fascinating questions. And having rabbis at this high level who are available, which often your local rabbi will be someone who can connect you with them or speak to them on your behalf, really can provide a lot of more conviction in the decisions in the life that you live. And I think it's incredible just to share with the listeners also like, you know, the great halachic uh, authority, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, what's called the Posik, uh, who's no longer alive anymore. His um, One of his sons passed away uh, recently, but he still has one son who's alive, wrote many responsa on medical issues like this based on the Talmud, which was written 2,000 years ago. And that's just something so incredible that there's actually like, there are, you can have legit halachic Torah, Talmudic discussions about modern uh, medical innovations. Yeah, 100%. I've never called her by first and he had to tell me that he has to get back to me. So every, as technology continues to change, he somehow knows it all. He's in touch with doctors, he's in touch with people on the ground and he really knows every time I've called, I've called with questions probably a few times a week for years. And thank God he has always been able to guide me and provide what I needed. So you're saying for him, it's a blend, just to get this clear, it's a blend of halachic knowledge combined with just an ability as a rabbi, as an advanced, as a super rabbi to approach things with kind of that analytic mind combined with years of experience. Would you say it's it's all of those factors kind of- Yeah, put together? a lot of that provide- and also speaking to doctors to get the information because yeah. he has to understand what is happening so that he can rule and determine what the proper way to handle it is. Got it. So he's kind of like a one-stop shop of halachic knowledge, experience in the field, and just a, a brilliant analytical mind. And therefore, he can sort of carry, the super rabbi can carry uh, someone going through this through the, the process and, and, and give them perspectives and angles that maybe they wouldn't get straight from the doctor. Absolutely. And I guess that being said, I also want, want to, I have just a, another couple of things I'd love to ask you, but just to go back to, you spoke about um, advocating, because I guess since we're speaking about, you know, what other information a person has to gather, uh, what did you mean by that when you said earlier? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you remember that. Yes. So one of the things I advise people is a lesson we learned through our struggle is that you have to be willing to advocate for yourself because the world we live in is becoming more and more selfish. And if you're not going to advocate for yourself, nobody else will. And what happened with us is a very interesting story. It's not clear if it actually made a difference. But when I went to meet with this doctor, if you remember back the constellation appointment. So after we just found out that our first transfer didn't work, I asked him if we should do anything differently. And he said, no, which I thought was weird. Why would we do the exact same thing if it didn't work? Mm -hmm. 
So I called up a doctor I have a relationship with because of my involvement on the community level. And I asked them, I said, can you do me a favor? Can I give you our medical file? Mind you, that's about a hundred pages of medical paperwork. Can I send it to you? Can you review it and let me know if you think we should do anything differently? He said, sure. I sent it to him. A few days later, he calls me back and he says, listen, Rabbi, there's one thing that I noticed you were never checked for. And that is a very specific bacteria. It's called endometritis. And it's a very specific bacteria that a woman can live her whole life with. It has no symptoms. It has no issues, but it can prevent fertility. And there's a simple oral antibiotic. It's a three-week antibiotic. It's a, it's a, it has to get rid of a very specific bacteria. But I noticed you've never been tested for that. And I'm sorry, you can't test for that. I've noticed you've never treated for that. And I think that may be worth treating. He prescribed it. She took it. And the next transfer, we were pregnant. Wow. So we'll never know if it was because of that or not. But the point is that a person has to be willing to advocate. And you know yourself, if you feel your doctor's not doing a good job, switch to another doctor, get another opinion. I'm constantly, probably the most common thing I do for people is get a second opinion for them. Because if someone calls me up and says, hey, I just had whatever experience, can you ask a doctor if that's something they would agree with? Thank God I have a relationship with many doctors. I can usually call them or text them and have an answer in a matter of minutes if they would agree or try something else. So that opportunity and the willingness to take a stand for yourself can really, really be a difference maker in your treatment plan. Yeah. So to the family members, to the family members, you mentioned before, again, if you're sharing it with someone, they might come back with a response. You're saying, don't make any suggestions, you know, don't be that mother-in-law that says, oh, it's, you know, but just say, I'm sorry, you're going through this. I'm here with you. What about the family members who they're watching from afar? The couple hasn't opened up to them. You know, it's, it's the elephant in the room and uh, they don't know like, okay, so am I not supposed to speak about my kids? Am I supposed to speak about my kids? Or let's just even widen the question, right? You're there, you're the married friends with this and the single friend is, is, is present or, or whatever it is, right? Because you're, you're with someone there in your life who is going through this difficult situation. Um, uh, is it best to, A, try to bring it up with them, give them an opening to speak to you about it, totally try don't talk about your kids at all don't talk about your spouse at all go you know go the other extreme try to be natural about it and assume that they just want you to be natural and normal with them like what is the overall approach for the family and friends that are in the presence of someone going through a difficult time yeah i'm glad you asked that because that's an important question it's not that like one size fits all. It's not that everything's the same. It depends, first of all, on the relationship with your sibling. Some people have closer relationships than others. I think there's nothing wrong with, with trying to find out in a natural way, meaning you can say, listen, I don't know if you're struggling with anything, but if you are, I'm here for you. And you don't have to mention anything more than that they can share. As far as once you've decided, let's say that they're not sharing or that they've told you, yes, we are struggling, but I don't want to talk about it. As far as when you're interacting with them, natural is the best way. Nobody wants to feel like they're the outsider in the room. And people going through infertility already feel so lonely, so isolated, so different than the community. And when they walk into a room and everyone suddenly stops talking and you're like, oh, I guess they were talking about kids. Right. So it just makes them feel Ouch. so much more different. So yeah, does that mean that when you're there only talk about kids? Of course not. 
you have to realize there's so many things that we can talk about beyond our children. And it's important to make sure that that's clear, that talk about them as people or other things that don't have to do with children, but that doesn't mean that we hide our children from them in closets so that they feel even more awkward. Right. So yeah, the answer is to try to be as natural as possible while also being sensitive to not being overly discussing children. But you do recommend though, that first line of just opening it up for them and just saying, hey, if you want. If you're I'm close enough, depending on the relationship, but that's right. it. But yeah, if you know that they can't stand you, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Got it, got it. Talk about, um, uh, you mentioned that you and your wife had different, uh, different ways of approaching it. You also mentioned that it takes a tremendous strain. Were there specific things that you did to try to stay close to your wife, to try to compensate for the strain, the toll that it can take on a marriage? Yeah. So I'll share with you an, an incredible study. There was a study done in Denmark where they tracked 50,000 couples that were going through fertility treatment and they tracked them from the beginning of the journey until the end of the journey. And they found two incredible findings. The first thing they found was that more than 50% of the couples were no longer together at the end of the journey. Wow. Which means that most couples could not handle the struggle of going through infertility as a couple. But the other finding they found was that almost every single couple that stayed together said that the process of going through infertility together brought their relationship to a level that they would never have gotten to without it. And what the study points out is that really it's an opportunity. Any challenge you go through, regardless of what it is, is going to be difficult on a relationship. But it's really an opportunity. You can let it tear you apart, or you can use it as an opportunity to show that you as a unit are strong enough to get through this. So that's just a general introduction. On a practical level, what, the way that we handled it was just we discussed it up front. Like, this is how I want to handle it. This is how you want to handle it. And that's okay. And it's not a problem that we want to handle things differently. And you are going to be more cautious about it. And I'm going to be more optimistic. But that's fine. We're both going to recognize that that's best for you. This is best for me. And that's how we're going to get through this together. So that's what I advise couples, that they have to know how they want to process things and how their spouse wants to process things and make sure they're both aware that that's how they want to process things. Because right. if you know, but your spouse doesn't realize that you want to process things that way, they're going to be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you optimistic every month? This hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that that's what you feel a need to do to maintain your sanity. Got it. So that open communication and figuring out how you each process things could really be a game changer. Got it. Tell us a little bit about the spiritual journey through this whole thing. Like, did you feel far from God? Did you feel closer to Hashem? Were there highs and lows? Did this, I don't know, like, I'm, I, I, I could just imagine again, because we're talking about something about, you know, the way your, your bodies work. And was there ever a feeling of, of resentment? Tell us about that. Yeah, so that's probably the most common thing people struggle with is that when a person is told, many of your listeners may or may not be aware, one of the first commandments in the Torah is to have children. So from a religious perspective, it's a very strange thing. How can God command me to have children and then make it that I can't have children? What, does, maybe there's no God. Maybe there is a God who doesn't want me to be part of this people. It's a very, very strange dynamic 
having a commandment from God to have children and then not being able to have children because of how God made you. So it's a very, very important issue. It happens to be, we all know, or at least both of us as rabbis know that individuals that struggle tend to take one of two approaches. They either cling to the religion, like there has to be more meaning to this. I need to get closer to it or they run. I can't be part of this. There's no way it's true. So my wife and I are fortunate. We both were more the clinging type that we said, like, we have to acknowledge that God is running the show. There's some meaning here. And we really, we, we prayed and prayed, we davened, we tried, we really begged God to answer us. And in fact, one of the things I, I point out to people is that I actually miss the fact that my prayers now are nowhere near the level they were at then. Wow. It's not often in our life that we are literally begging God, I need this, I need this help. So we were sort of in that process where we were, I don't, I wouldn't say like we're at this super level of connection with God, but we really believed that this was up to God and that we needed God to make the difference. But that being said, a lot of people go the other way, that how could God do this to me? And it's, it's really complicated. I'll, I'll tell you an unbelievable story though. There's, there's a story that there was a development in New Jersey being built. And the way this development was being built was cookie cutter homes. So every house was exactly the same. They had the tree exactly where it was, the sprinkler system, the mailbox, every single thing exactly the same. And they built this development, a few hundred homes. And a few months later, Hurricane Sandy comes through. And Hurricane Sandy demolishes this little development. And all these houses are knocked over. There's destruction and chaos everywhere. And the city sends the damage assessors to look at it. And they look and they see trees are knocked down. Cars are crushed and houses down. And they notice something very strange. They notice that several of the trees are still standing erect. And they can't figure it out. How could it be that a tree next to a house that gets knocked over is still standing? And they did a lot of research and they realized an amazing thing. They realized that when the architects for the land developed where the sprinklers would go relative to the trees, a few trees were too far from the sprinkler system to actually get watered. So if you can imagine for a second, those trees, they're sitting there and they're saying to God, why does every other tree get rained on and not me? I don't get any water. It's not fair. But what does a tree do when it doesn't get watered? It takes its roots and it strengthens itself deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And therefore, when Hurricane Sandy comes through, all the other trees that never needed to strengthen themselves, they got knocked right over. But the trees that had really been challenged and needed to look inside themselves and spread their roots deep, they had the strength to withstand that hurricane. And in life, I try to tell people it's the exact same thing that when we have a challenge, we can either let it knock us over or we can look inside and strengthen ourselves, strengthen our connection with God, strengthen our relationships, strengthen everything about ourselves and utilize that as an opportunity so that in the future, when the next challenge, when the next hurricane comes, hopefully we can stand up strong and have the strength to withstand it. That, that is incredible. So, so powerful. And I'm not quite going to let you go yet. I'm going to ask you just to continue a little bit more. And if you can speak to not only those who are struggling with infertility, but to the single people out there who are wondering, you know, about whether they're going to have children or the people that may, may, that perhaps went through treatments and it wasn't successful or whatever people are going through where they feel a void because 
the family that they dreamt of is not coming to fruition for whatever reason. Like, what do you, what do you tell them to try to give them hope and a feeling that they're, you know, that they're, that they're not, you know, useless or, or, or whatever it might, whatever they might be going through to feel that they're missing out on this part of their life. Like, what do you tell them? Yeah. So that's, that's a very difficult question. I'm sort of wondering, maybe you should have let me off earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a question I get asked, but you have to keep in mind a few things. Number one, that's not an experience I had. So it's very hard for me to tell someone else that everything will be okay when I have children and they're at a point where they know they can't. That being said, there I've gotten this question before and I've spoken to Rabbi first about it, Rabbi Shmuel first, who I've mentioned before. And what he said, the most important thing to convey is, is that nobody should think that their value in life is dependent upon how many children a person has. So it doesn't mean that it's not painful. It's unimaginable. The pain of someone who goes through this and doesn't have results is a pain that is unimaginable. But it's important to make sure that they still can feel like they're part of the fabric of society, like they still have something to offer. They still can accomplish. So the pain, there's nothing you can do really to numb the pain. The pain is too much. But the opportunity to let them still feel like they're part of the community and recognize that there is part of life and connecting with Hashem and our community above and beyond the children we have, hopefully that can give them some encouragement. But really there is no real answer to the pain that someone who's gone through treatment and has nothing to show for it has been through. Yeah. Yosef, wow, 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 wow. This is this was really, really incredible. Thank you for, for opening up and for sharing your story with the world, with us. It's really, really incredible. So tell us about your book. Where can people get your book? Thank you so much. So the book is called In It Together. It was published by um, Adir Press and is available on Feldheim's website, Feldheim, I think it's feldheim.com. If anyone has trouble getting it there, they can also reach out to me directly to get a copy and always happy to help and try to be a resource for others. Awesome. Rabbi Shapiro, thank you so much for sharing your story once again, which, wishing you much success in getting the book out to the world. I hope that everybody reads it and everyone who needs it and, and so many people need it. And in all of your work, just sending you tremendous blessings, bracha, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was really an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.